Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Hello, my friends. I hope you'll indulge us this week because we're being very cheeky and bringing you a story that is in no way an Australian true crime. It's such a moving story, though, and it's a great interview And it's the very first episode we uploaded for subscribers only, so not a lot of people got to hear it. It's also an episode that's related to this week's subscriber-only episode. I hope that makes sense. This is a chat with an American man called Jim Cosgrove 
whose day job is children's entertainment. But his life has been touched by violent crime and he had an uncontrollable urge to find someone who was lost many years ago. He wrote a book about the search, which I read and I thought it was just fantastic. Speaking to him about it was also a very enjoyable experience and I'm glad to share it with you. And at the end of this episode, I'll tell you more about this week's Australian True Crime Plus guest. Hello Australian True Crime Plus members and welcome to our exclusive extra episode for this fortnight. I'm sure you can hear the power tools in the background. I'm recording this from my home. It's very plus, isn't it? Here's the thing about the plus in Australian True Crime Plus. We figure it can also mean plus lots of things, power tools and true crime stories that aren't even Australian. And this gives us the opportunity to bring you stories that we've always wanted to bring you like this one. Well, actually, I mean, I haven't always wanted to bring you this story because it's about a book that's a new book and it's a book that I read recently. But we can now bring you stories like this and book recommendations like this. The book is called Ripple and it's by an American journalist who now works mostly as a children's entertainer, would you believe? His name is Jim Cosgrove and this is his smash hit song, Mr. Stinky Feet. Stinky Feet. Stinky Feet. My brother's got stinky feet, stinky feet, stinky feet. My brother's got stinky feet. He takes his shoes off at the door. He throws his socks right on the floor. He rubs his toes and says they're sore. I don't think I can take it anymore. Stinky feet. You can definitely download Mr. Stinky Feet and he promises that if enough of us do, he will tour Australia. That's what he does. He tours the States and he makes his living now out of entertaining children. But the thing is that he studied journalism very seriously as a young man and he worked as a journalist for a long time. His own childhood was haunted by the disappearance of a boy from his neighbourhood. And as you'll hear shortly, the children in Jim's neighbourhood were a very, very close-knit bunch. So it was like losing a cousin and it obviously made a huge impression on him. But there's yet another event that links Jim's life to the true crime genre. I couldn't help but ask Jim Cosgrove about the rather stellar quote on the front of his book, Ripple. Under the words riveting true crime storytelling, chilling and unforgettable, is the very impressive name of John Douglas, who a lot of us will know is the co-author of Mindhunter and the man widely recognised as the world authority, if not the inventor of criminal profiling. I mean, it's not every first-time author who gets such a luminary to read their manuscript and contribute a nice big fat quote for the cover. Jim was clearly very proud, but also a little bit embarrassed when I asked about the quote, and he told me very humbly that he knows John Douglas through a crime that happened in his wife Jenny's family. In fact, he told me that Douglas had written about it in one of his books. If you're interested, the book is 1998's Obsession, co-authored with Mark Olshaker, and the crime is the rape and murder of college student Stephanie Schmidt by her co-worker Donald Ray Gideon, who was a paroled repeat sex offender. Gideon had simply lied on the form when applying to wash dishes at the restaurant known to employ female college students as waitresses. The form included a question asking if applicants had ever committed a felony offence and Gideon ticked no and that was the extent of the criminal background check in 1993. So although as you're about to hear Jim Cosgrove is a very upbeat guy it seems like he was almost destined to write a great very original true crime book. We have five copies of that book, Ripple, to give away, and we'd love for you to leave us a voicemail message about Australian True Crime Plus, please. Help us sell it to the listeners who haven't signed up yet. 
We just found out, though, that we're in the top five subscription podcasts in the country, which is very exciting. And we're working very hard to make it worth your while. So help us spread the word and we'll keep the prizes coming. You can also tell us what you'd like to hear in future, too. We'd love to know. Anyway, let's get on and listen to this amazing story from Jim Cosgrove. It's all about his childhood neighbour, Frank McGonagall. And we begin by settling into their neighbourhood, which plays a very big part in the book. It sounds really lovely. It's in Kansas City and it's called... Brookside. Brookside. Brookside is a is a neighborhood of Kansas City, Missouri. Yes, and Brookside is a, a beautiful place. Tree lined streets, big homes. At the time, you were either Catholic or Jewish in the neighborhood. And when I grew up, I thought those were the only two kinds of people. You're either Catholic or Jewish, and because all the Protestants had left because the school system in Kansas City was a mess at the time. And so they w- they were seeking better schools. And the Catholics and the Jewish kids, we had our own schools. And so we all kind of hung out together. And we all, all the Catholic families belonged to the Jewish Community Center where we played baseball and we took swimming lessons and we uh, were in plays and all that kind of stuff. And it was just riddled with children too. I mean, kids... Everywhere on our street alone, I think we had like uh, 27 kids on our block. Well, that's what I was thinking. You had to have big houses because you had big families. Yes. How many kids in your family? There are eight. I'm the baby of eight. Eight? And in the McGonagall's? Nine. Yep. They had nine. Mm. If there was a family with less than four children, you thought, oh, something must have gone wrong. Or, you know, like, uh, you know, there was a, a kid in my class who came from a family of 12. So they've just these big Irish Catholic families and everybody kind of knew each other. And we played in each other's houses. If we were at the house when it was lunchtime, we ate lunch there. And a lot of physical play that our kids don't, we lament that our kids don't play like this anymore. You talk about foosball, of course, you know, inside, I guess, for the cold months down in the basement, broom hockey. We don't have a lot of hockey here, but I can guess what that is. Is that indoors where you, you crack out mum's broom? No, no, no. It was, it, it was in the, uh, out on the, out on the patio or the driveway. Uh, so, and, and some people really got into it. it, it sometimes you just played with a can and a couple brooms and you kicked it around. But then in the wintertime, when it got cold enough, they would, and my brothers did this on our patio hosed it down so it froze over so you're actually sliding around on ice you know (laughs) and red rover you talk about sustaining a pretty serious injury during a very spirited game of red rover red rover that's right i broke my arm playing red rover yes your poor mother yes oh we we my mother spent a lot of time in the emergency room at the hospital with with my my siblings yeah. and me. So a lot yeah. of kids playing rough. Yeah, that's a lot of time. But it was just a yeah, it was just a great you know it was a great environment to grow up, grow up in. And so we knew every we knew everybody's um, families and and we had such, the kind of relationships that you know they were like cousins. You know. Well, and also you know you talk about Frank sort of not not quite ever fitting into that testosterone fueled environment that his brothers created over there. He was always just a bit of a dreamy kid, wasn't he? Right. Yeah, he was he was uh peaceful, he was quiet, he 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 was a dreamer, a, a drifter and didn't quite fit in with this, you know, loud, rowdy uh bunch and 
you know, was made fun of for the, for that some. And and these days, I think, you know, we go out of our way to try and make space for those people when, when they're kids. Absolutely. When you have a small kid like that, you go, okay, well, that's the way it is and let's yes. make space for that. But in those days when you and I were kids, right. not so much. Just plow forward and, you know, there was lots of roughhousing. And if you, you know, I mean, I used to joke um, with, you know, well, my wife is from a very small family. So she, when she gets around our family, she's like, you guys talk constant. You talk at the same time and nobody stops to listen for an answer. And I said, yeah. And, you know, and at the dinner table, it, you had to throw a few elbows sometimes to get the last chicken leg or the, whatever, you know, you got to. You got to go, you miss out. And Frank could dish it, you know, he could roll with his brothers and dish it out. He was a, a fierce competitor. He played um, soccer and American football. Uh, so he was competitive with that. But at the same time, would, you know, withdraw. So his family, his brothers, you know, didn't know how to, how to deal with that. And so by the time he was 26, 27, he had tried college. He'd rattled around there for, for six years, right? right. So that's much longer than most people go to college. Right. And did he graduate? He had, No, he never ended up graduating. He spent six years there. He, so he came back to Kansas City from college. Uh, he had gone away and went to work at the family grocery store, the family meat market. It was a, mainly a meat market, but a small grocery as did all the kids, all the kids worked there at some point, you know, but he, uh, was living at home. He was, and he didn't feel good about that either. You know, he certainly, his younger siblings were already, were kind of leapfrogging ahead of him with careers uh, or, or, you know, college and, and graduating, going on to get advanced degrees. And he was still kind of kicking around at home, working at the store. And he was not just not feeling too good about himself. Was there a sense that do you think that he was still trying to find himself in in that parlance that we use? Was he he was going on trips, wasn't he? Every now and then, off on sort of seeking trips and acid trips. Let's be, acid trips as well, right? Well, yes, acid trips as well as uh, road trips. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think you know he was he was a dreamer, a drifter, and trying to find himself. And and actually, when he finally did leave home. His, you know, almost all, every member of the family, certainly his siblings were like, great, finally, he, he finally ventured off. He finally took off on his own. And maybe this is, uh, you know, going to be his breakthrough. In the early days of his disappearance, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was 1982. He left home on June 7. Was he, from memory, he was initially going, was he going to see the Grateful Dead? Was that the, the thing? Because he was a big Grateful Dead he fan? He was a big Grateful Dead fan. No, he had just returned from a trip to see right. the Grateful Dead with his brother. And uh, they don't know. They, they, many of his siblings thought he went West because he loved the West. It was the Western United States. And he had just returned from California uh, with his brother for, from a long road trip to see the Grateful Dead in uh Berkeley. Because he wanted to push on, didn't he, in the car? And his brother said, no, I'm over it. I'm going home. Yeah. 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 He just, he, he wanted to, yeah, he wanted to take his time getting back and go the back roads and kind of see, mm. you know, the plains of the Midwest. And uh, he, his brother was like, no, nah, done. This trip was just too much and drove straight through and got home. And he was not happy about it. Or Frank was not happy about it. And then a couple of days later, he takes off again. 
so he was gone a couple, you know, a couple days. His, you know, and his parents thought the same thing. It was this is one of his road trips, and he's off for a couple days. But the thing about Frank, he was very loyal and very close to his family, and he always called. He always let his parents know where he was, even when he did take off for a few days. So when he didn't call after a couple of days, they thought, okay, that's odd. And then when it turned into a week, uh, and then a couple of weeks, they got suspicious and started asking around if anybody had seen him, and um, and then went. His dad had the you know the the wits about him to go uh, to the local bank where he banked and check to see if he had withdrawn any money, and that's when they found out that he would withdrawn all of his money. And he had asked about getting traveler's checks at the time. Traveler's checks were away from home, from safely travel with some already, money. Oh. But he was unable to get traveler's checks mm. that day because the officer, bank officer who was in charge of that was not in oh. that day. So he withdrew $3,800 in cash and took it with him. <laughs> so he had $3,800, part of which he wadded up and shoved into his sock because that's where he kept some of his cash stuffed into his a sock. Uh, I mean, on his leg, not a no. sock in the car somewhere, <laughs> but actually on his mm. foot. Yeah, for safety. So I know everybody gathered around, everybody chipped in because, again, this is a very tight-knit community. Everyone prayed, and uh, there was a lot of praying to St. Jude. As a Catholic, you, you go through the ranks, right? You start with your general prayers, and then you kind of, then you better up, up the ante a little bit, like, well, we better start saying some rosaries. And then, well, we, then you go to St. Jude because he's the patron saint of Hopeless cases. Yeah. So then as it went into the first anniversary of his disappearance, then on the 7th June, they had a, a mass at the local church and in his honor. And then they continued to do that every year. For nine years, they looked for him. Yeah. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There was a breakthrough in 1991. For whatever reason, this detective in Kansas City decided to go back and have a look at some old unsolved, right? Some old missing persons cases. Right. He had recently transferred and he was new to missing persons. And he's happened literally upon some old files in a file cabinet that were stuffed in the back. And there were some unsolved cases. And he said, hey, would it be all right if I look into these, you know? And by that time, in 1991, we had a national crime computer. So all the states and the jurisdictions were finally communicating. So there was a lot of information out there. So like recently in Australia, this was kind of a time when people were looking into old cases. Within 48 hours, 72 hours, he had answers to, I think, seven of the 10 that he looked into. And he talked about how a couple of the cases, he found these missing persons, but they did not want to, to be found. They were alive. He found two of them alive, but they did not want to be contacted by their family. And he said that was really difficult to have to go to those families and say, yes, I've found out, but they don't want to be, they don't want to be found. So that's heartbreaking in, in another, you know, another way, right? He found that uh, there was a report of an unidentified body in a small town in South Carolina on the coast, on the Atlantic coast of the U.S. And the sheriff and the coroner in this little town were the the only unidentified body they'd ever had. This is the point at which it gets really moving, I think, because we've got this beautiful family and we've got this detective who just takes the time, who just decides he's going to make something happen, and he does. And then we find out that these people in this tiny town, the, the, the sheriff and the coroner, are very kind-hearted men who've had Frank with them this whole time, and they've treated him with such respect and dignity and care. In fact, the, most a lot of the community, I'm not going to say all of the community, but a lot of the community has actually taken Frank to their hearts the name they have given these remains are unidentified to them. Right. Just terrifying, horrible. Right. What's the name that they gave him? They, everybody in town knew him as the boy in the woods. The boy in the woods. I mean, he's a man, but in so many ways he is a right. boy, you know? Right. right, exactly. He was a young man, of course, and, but they all, yeah, the boy in the woods is how they knew him. Mm. It's like they knew him. It feels so beautiful to me, you know? You, you mentioned the corner. The corner to me, Mac Williams one of my favorite characters there, just a lovely guy. He was just a, a, just a, you know, he wanted so badly to solve this case and not just for his own ego, but he wanted to solve the case for the family. He, you know, he, Jim, he would say, Jim, I just, it hurts my heart that this boy, you know, Somewhere, he said, you know, there's a family who's missing a son. There's a family who's missing a brother. And he said, I want to, you know, I I, want to reunite these people. And again, it gets more moving to me 
because you went there and you've just foreshadowed that by saying that you met this coroner. I mean, you spent a lot of time there. You you went to this tiny fishing town in South Carolina. This is where the story becomes even more personal for you. Right. And so I approached this whole thing as a journalist. I, I My intention was to stay out of the story. I did not intend to be part of the story at all. Um, and so I went to South Carolina in 1995, um, initially, and it was, um, not tourist season. So it was off season. It was February and it was, you know, kind of chilly and, um, there weren't many people there. So I stayed in a bed and breakfast by myself. I had the whole place to myself and I spent a few days, um, kicking around town. The sheriff was, um, kind of humored me a bit. He was, he was, uh, a little, a little bit more surly than uh, the coroner. Uh, Mac was a lovely guy, was open and willing to talk to me and give me his notes and gave me his, he kept amazing notes and diaries. And, um, the sheriff was kind of gave, gave me the, um, the file on the case and put me in a room and said, just keep to yourself. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, I started, asking questions and poking around town and um, was guided by other people. Because we still have a mystery. I mean, we haven't actually even alerted our listeners to the fact that although Frank's remains were discovered, he was clearly the victim of a violence, of a homicide. Right. So they, they found him. He had been shot in the head seven days after he left home. They found him in a wooded area that he would not have found on his own. It was off the road. It was off the path. And somebody would have had to led him to this spot in the woods where it looked like he was going to camp. He had set up some bricks and rocks to make a fire ring and had collected some kindling. And uh, his they found his sleeping bag there. And he was propped up against a tree. But that was it. His car was gone. His no identification. His most of his belongings were gone. He was found in the woods by two teenage boys who often played in the woods and knew those knew the woods like the back of their hand. And they rode their bicycles through there. And one of the kids that found the body was a notorious troublemaker and kind of a, a thug. Known to police, we say in Australia. Known to police. Known to police. Yes, he was known. To, he was definitely known to police and was often at the root of a lot of the things that happened in this little town and petty things, you know, like somebody's shed was broken into or something. A, a, a fire was set in an old shed or something and some money was stolen from somebody's house. So he was known to actually like an arsonist who will set a fire and then call the fire department. He was known for firing shots into the air on one end of town and then calling the police and saying, I heard gunfire. Yeah, as an odd psychology there, but he was known for reporting some of the crimes that he had committed. So he immediately became a suspect in this case that, huh, okay, you found this guy in the woods. Nobody knows who he is. And he was with his cousin who was 14 at the time, but they never had enough evidence to pin anything on him. They never were able to get any, of course, any kind of a confession or anything out of him. That's a big leap too. It's a big leap from troublemaking around town to shooting someone in the face. To murder. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I Yes, I agree. Absolutely. But everybody in town 
kind of had the same story. Oh, Tommy, Tommy's the one who did it. He's the one. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, uh, but, but so I pursued that a little bit. Well, tell me more. Why do you think Tommy did it? And I got to the point where I felt like he didn't do it, but that there was someone else in town who did do it and they were kind of covering for him or just not, of course, telling me the whole story. <laughs> did you feel like an outsider? Was it that kind of vibe that, because it's a small town, right. did you get that impression that you were being treated like a guy that people aren't necessarily going to talk yes. to because you're an outsider? And-, and I was 29 at the time and, you know, uh, I was doing this for my master's thesis for uh, my master's in creative nonfiction writing and while I was working in a newspaper. And so the college boy comes into town asking questions. And uh, yeah, that's a, a bit of a juxtaposition to this, these folks who are, you know, fishermen. They're mostly, uh, uh, um, they, they shell fishermen, primarily clams. And, and um, um, but it, it's a, it's a, it's a hard working life. And a lot of these guys are uh, pretty surly and gritty. And, um, and I, so I went to local bars, which is always a great place to get stories and started asking questions. And I heard insane stories about this town. Yeah. Because the other thing that quite often happens around harbors is, um, you know, a bit of extra importing and exporting. <laughs> oh yes. Right. And this history of importing and exporting dates went back hundreds and hundreds of years. So I started hearing stories about pirates. And so the town is Merle's Inlet, South Carolina. So it is an inlet from the sea. So it is a safe, kind of a safe harbor. It's a place where some ships would duck into if the seas were too rough or if someone was trying to hide, they would duck in there. And then there was this system of creeks and um, um, uh, rivers, inland rivers that were, uh, that would, you know, dump out into the inlet. And so it was a great place to hide. So throughout history, I started to hear these stories, piracy um, during the, uh, American revolution, they were running guns through there. Then during the American civil war, they were running supplies to the South, uh, and they were running in, you know, uh, food as well as, uh, weapons. <clears throat> and then during prohibition in the United States, when liquor was outlawed, they were running liquor through there. And then came the, then came the drugs. Cause like you said about Frank, if you're a foreigner, if you're from, not from there, that you would not have a hope of finding anything if a local has stashed it up one of those estuaries or in one of those, right? you're not going to find your way through that area. You're not going to right. find anything. Yeah. It, you, you had to know the land, right. To get around uh, this history of piracy and nefarious yeah. activity and just, and literally like stories of people getting cut up with chainsaws and thrown to the alligators. And I was just wondering if there were alligators. There. Yes. And yes. crazy. And here's another thing. The town is unincorporated. And the county line runs right through the the northern part of this town. So part of the town is in one county and the other part is in another. So there are two different sheriffs that patrol the area. We don't have that. We see that, though, when we watch true crime shows about America. It feels like people can get away with crimes because they weren't committed in that county. So no one's investigating it from the other county or something. Yes. 
Correct. It's always like, oh, that no, that's yours. No, that's mine. And, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's historically been a great place to commit a crime. If you wanted to commit a crime, this is the place to do it. So you started to get the feeling that you didn't think this teenager did it. Then, of course, as a human being, not least, but as, a, as an investigative journalist and a person who's wanting a career in that space, your attention turns to, well, who did? This is, again, where this book just takes this whole other turn. This is what I love about it. We've been through this process of your general missing persons story, and it evolves into this really moving space, the great people of the inlet and you going there, amazing. But then we take this other turn where you meet a lady called Carol. Where did you meet Carol? Yes. Oh, yes. So I was staying in this bed and breakfast by myself. I had the whole place to myself. And one night, two women moved in across the hall from me. And so I went over and introduced myself. We started ch chatting it up and um, they said, uh, well, hey, let's, let's go out. And so we went out and had some drinks that night and had dinner. And shortly after we met, even before we went out that night, one of the women, uh, Carol's friend, said, hey, you should know that my friend Carol has worked with law enforcement to solve crimes. And I said, oh, really? Okay. Well, what's that all about? And, well, she's an energy reader. And I said, oh, is that like a psychic? Oh, no, no, no. Don't call her a psychic. She does not like to be called a psychic. She's an energy reader. I said, oh, okay, that's cool. That's interesting. Well, then she started to tell me some of the cases she'd worked on. And there were some high profile cases. One is pretty well known in, this, in the U.S. about a woman who had drowned two of her sons, strapped them into the car and drove a car into a lake and claimed that she had been carjacked. Anyway, she said, well, my friend Carol here helped the FBI solve that crime because she saw where these kids were submerged in this lake. And okay, okay, I heard the story, and I, you know, and I'm so, of course, I'm interested, but as a journalist, I'm staying skeptical. And so, anyway, we went out that night, had our fun, and then the next day, we were at lunch with the owner of the bed and breakfast, and she was asking me, the owner was asking me how my week had gone. She said, "Oh, you've been you've been here for several days now, and how's your research coming?" And I said, "Well, everybody in town seems to think that Tommy is the one who killed Frank." But I don't. I said, I get the feeling that there's someone else involved and I think he's still living and he's still here. And Carol, who was sitting there, she said, you're right. And I said, what do you mean I'm right? She said, you're right. There is someone else that killed Frank and he's still living here. And I said, OK, how do you know? And she said, honey, it is no coincidence that you and I met this weekend. And uh, she said, there are no coincidences. I said, all right, fine. I'm with you on that. I said, would you be willing to help me? And she said, yes, because you asked me to help you. I have to help you. So I asked her to go to the woods with me where they found Frank's body. And that afternoon we went into the woods and she described for me in insane detail, Frank's murder. She described who was involved, what they looked like, Height, hair color, she described the dialogue of what happened. She also described Frank's emotions, too, like what Frank was thinking and feeling after he'd been shot and he realized he was dead. And the the sadness and the guilt and the uh, or the just the, uh, the desire to go back home and. And she told me stuff about the McGonagall family that she would never have known. She told me stuff about this case, which she had never known. She wasn't from this town. She was from, uh, actually, she was from North Carolina. She had never been to this town before. 
the, the detail, the things she told me were I mean, crazy. And she did describe for me the guy who shot Frank in incredible detail. And this wasn't a guy that you had met. It's not like you had in your mind someone that you thought at that time was a suspect or you hadn't even laid eyes on this person yet. Yeah, this her description was somebody, yeah, who I had, had not seen or met yet, right? No. One of the things that she mentioned about Frank was that he had some guilt right. in in the afterlife after he had died right. about the fact that he'd his last conversation with one of his brothers had been a sort of an argument that they'd had and then you knew right that his brother was also feeling this terrible guilt about the fact that they'd had a sniping conversation in the kitchen just before Frank left and again just really moving and and incredible that she knew that i mean she she cannot have possibly known that Yes, she, she, yes, she, uh, she talked about the argument that he had with his brother and an argument he had with his, with his mother. Because his brother certainly did not publicize that ever. It was, he was ashamed of it and it was a deep secret of his. Right. So I took all that information and I recorded the whole thing. I recorded it on a little micro cassette player that I had. And that night I called Frank's brother, Mike, and told him all of this information and he was sobbing on the phone and he told me corroborated a lot of the things that she had told me. And I, and she had told me that the guy who killed Frank still had something of his, uh, an item of his that he had taken from Frank uh, from the crime scene. And Mike, his brother told me that night, yes, that's mine. No, don't say what it was, but that was amazing because you didn't even know that. Nobody knew. And, and it's, it's funny even that such brother bullshit that on his way out, Frank, Frank grabbed something of his big brothers that he'd always liked. Right, exactly, exactly, right. Naughty boy, grabbed it and threw it in his car right. and took it with him. Oh, my heart's racing. Right. And Carol mentions that Frank's murderer has this thing in his possession still. I mean, right. And then it comes to you to say, oh, by the way, she said the killer has this thing. And Mike says, oh, my God, yes, that's mine. Right. So he can identify that as his. It is the most amazing, amazing story. And we won't give away either the way Carol describes this man, the person she sees as the person who killed Frank, but she describes him so clearly that you find yourself looking at this person who fits her description completely. She described Frank's killer in, in, in amazing detail. So hair color height and eye color. And then a couple days later, I was out interviewing some people. And and by the way, over the course of the next day or two, many of the things that Carol predicted, I saw or came like, oh my God, Carol mentioned that. And there it is. Oh, and she mentioned a boat. She mentioned the name on the back of the boat. And then I saw this boat with this name on the back of the boat. And so, yeah, this, this guy was on my list of people to talk to. He was a friend of the suspects. And so I tracked him down. Uh, He was shucking oysters in an oyster shack. And I knocked on the door and he turned around and looked at me and I, and it was this guy. So there I was. And I thought, Oh, this is the guy that Carol said killed Frank. And so I just being the journalist was Hey, I in town, just poking around, asking questions, and um, I'm I'm here doing a story about the body that they found across the road in the woods. And he said, "Oh, the boy in the woods." 
I don't know anything about that. And um, he continued to work. And I said, well, then and I kind of shifted gears. Well, I said, well, tell me about Merle's Inlet. Tell me about this town. And he gave to me the best line I think anybody has ever said to me anywhere. This is like out of a movie. I said, I heard that it was kind of a crazy place. He said, yeah, we've been known to raise little hell around here. And then he looked me up and down. And remember, I'm this college boy, you know, do to do. And he looks me from head to toe and he said, but I imagine our idea of raising hell is a little bit different than yours. And I had to agree with him. I, yes, I think you're right. Cutting up people with chainsaws. And yes, that was a little bit different than the neighborhood I came from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I broke my arm once in Red Rover. <laughs> yes, yes, right. <laughs> Tough guy. Were you scared? Were you scared of him? Um, you know, I, w I don't know. People have asked me that question. And I don't know if I was just dumb enough. Really, I, I, I never feared for my safety while I was there. Although I am just the two of us in this oyster shack and he's got a shucking knife in his hand. And, but I, I quickly knew I had to get out of there. So, I mean, I backed, literally backed out the door cause I didn't want to turn my back on him, but thanked him for his time. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And I'm going to exit now rather quickly. And so, um, I think I was, I felt cautious. I don't know. I don't know that. It, yeah. If I was just foolish enough to not be scared, uh, but, um, I, you know, I knew I needed to get out of there. Yeah. I mean, I'd be scared for as long as I was in the town. Though. So right after that, then I went back to the bed and breakfast and I called, uh, the detective, the, the detective who worked for the sheriff's department who had worked on this case. And I told him, Hey, a lot of weird stuff's happened over the last couple of days. I'm going to tell you this story. I know it's weird, but just bear with me. And he heard me out. And that's when he said, if you can't prove this in a court of law, it's time to turn your back and walk away. And he said, I suggest you do that. It's time for you to go. <laughs> in a very polite way, like, it's you. I think you've worn out your welcome in this town, so it's time for you to move on. That was uh, 95. Well, I went back many years later. I went back then in 2019 with Mike, Frank's brother, and my brother. We interviewed many of the people I had interviewed before. Uh, we found a few other people to talk to. And many of the people who were involved were dead by then. How has the McGonigal family recovered from this? Um, you know, they. one of the beautiful things about them is that they got together and talked about what are the lessons that we can learn from what happened to Frank and what are the lessons we can learn about us and how we, how we interact as a family. And so they talked about like, you know, there was a lot of guilt. Of course, we drove Frank away. We, we did not create an environment for him that was nurturing and, and welcoming. And so there's a lot of soul searching and a lot of really hard conversations that happen. And I'm really impressive with about how they, how they, uh, worked through that. And then, and then the fact that they were so open to me, they were very vulnerable. They were, they eat. I mean, I sat down with each one of the siblings and they told me their stories. I didn't have to ask a lot of questions. They just, they just went. And, 
And then to come back to the story 20 plus years later, I, you know, I was concerned that this would dredge up old stuff again. Um, so I went in very cautiously, but again, they were, they, you know, I, I think some of them were humoring me a little bit, but, uh, but they were all very, very open to talking about it again. That's incredible. I've never, um, I don't know that I've ever heard that reaction. We know the guilt is oftentimes misplaced, but certainly the ownership of the environment. Well, and I'll tell you, one of his sisters told me, she said, you, you want to know why Frank ended up with a bullet in his head under a tree in South Carolina? You've got to look at the way we were brought up. You've got to look at our family. You've got to look at the way we interacted. And I thought that was. What does she mean by that? Do you think that's a very intense thing to say? Well, just, just that, I mean, the, just that we, again, didn't create an environment for him that nurtured him. Thank you to our guest, Jim Cosgrove. There's a link in the show notes to help you buy your own copy of Ripple. And I'm so happy to tell you that our Australian True Crime Plus guest this week is Carol Williams, the energetic healer who was such a big part of Jim's search for Frank McGonagall. She doesn't disappoint, I promise you. One of her favourite longtime clients was Patsy Ramsey, mother of John Bonet, and she has some very interesting thoughts on that case. And all you have to do is to become an Australian True Crime subscriber to hear that exclusive episode. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.